Hello, Alex Stone with you again, and today's constitutional walk and talk is with ANU College of Law lecturer Anne McDuff, and it's about citizenship and the idea of Australian values. Anne started to raise her eyebrows about the Australian citizenship conversation a few years ago, and as a result, she has submitted a PhD on the issue. More on that soon, but Anne, um, first of all, how lovely to be walking with you on this sunny Winter's it, day. It is a lovely day. Uh, beautiful blue skies and no rain, thank you. And um, yes, it's lovely to be chatting with you too. Now, where are you walking me to? Well, I thought that today I'd take you around some of my favourite sculptures. The ANU has a number of sculptures and they're kind of hidden away. Some are more obvious. And I've been working in and around the campus for about 10 to 15 years. And I was studying here before that. So um, I know some of the little nooks and crannies. So I'm going to take you to three of my favourite ones. Now the first one I actually don't think makes it onto the sculpture list that the ANU actually distributes but it's a personal favourite of mine. It's actually a memorial to a dear friend of mine, Liz Allen, who tragically died in a car accident. She was a member of staff and the reason why I would like to take you there first is that actually it was one of her positions that was the reason that I came to the ANU College of Law in the first place. I also knew uh, Liz quite well in her family and so it's a very special place for me and I think it's lovely so uh, it's just up here. Oh that's a beautiful thing to do (laughs) because we can often pass by these memorials but Mm. to have this kind of personal remembrance Mm. is really great. Mm. And um, I don't know how many people know that this is what it's for. I mean at the time obviously the staff members who were here knew what it's for Would you like me to describe it? I would. I'd love you to. So it's a water feature, I guess, and there's a a flat tray at the top that's sort of metal set in a a concrete kind of block. But it's textured, um, lots of grace. It holds the water and it flows through uh, and drops down sort of along hugging a series of chains, I guess. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, about ten chains, and then they fall into a pond. This seating area that's just opposite is designed so you can sit here and look at the water feature and listen to it. It makes a beautiful sound under this wonderful gum tree. And there's a plaque that um, talks a little bit about Liz and the amazing work that she did. And I was speaking to a friend of mine about um, this walk today and about taking you here. And she said for the college it was quite a grieving time. I mean, it was quite tragic. This was the accident on the Hume Highway mm-hmm. and I think both Liz and her partner and two children were yeah, killed. Yeah. yeah, she had four children, so two children survived. But um, they were a big part of our local community. They were Her partner was a partner in a firm uh, with his name and uh, it made a big hole and there was quite a lot of grief. But although I took up one of the responsibilities, she was a liaison officer with our Indigenous students who come here and she was just a port of call for them to drop in and talk and share and give a bit of tutorial and or pastoral care advice, whatever was needed at the time and um, I was invited to do that part of her role and I felt that although it was in tragic circumstances that Liz would have really wanted that role to continue and felt it was really important and I just hoped that I could fill her shoes. Mm. That's so wonderful you've pointed this out because I suppose the depth of the personal and the family loss we so felt at the time and empathised with, but to find the, the depth of this loss for this institution mm. is really great to, for you to be marking. Yeah, no, it, uh, and it's a beautiful place. The birds come and visit here and so you'll often see cockatoos and magpies and they hang out here. It's nice. 
just on that role then that you were inspired by Liz and, and have taken on very seriously, tell me about that. Oh, so I work very closely with a colleague of mine, um, Asmi Wood, who I think you've met, and that is really just to provide academic and pastoral care to the Indigenous students who come. Um, we get some here, some who explicitly identify and others who informally do, and it can be an intimidating place for anyone, a law school, depending on where you've come from, what your background is, and it's really just to provide a bit of a personal bridge to those people. Um, sometimes they confront particularly difficult situations. So if there are uh, a number of occasions I had um, some Indigenous students who were just coming out of particular criminal law and procedures, quite difficult because a lot of their, um, their fellows are actually the, the object of the case or of the tragedy. And uh, um, while we try to recognise that, it's, there's no getting away that that's... Culturally different. Yeah, and it's uh, upsetting to see you know your your fellows and their treatment in such dire you know situations so their deaths their abuse at the hands of police and because they feature some of our cases and it can be easy to distance yourself from it and just look at the principles when and forget that there are real people involved who have had real lives and have been affected by the law around them well I'm feeling Liz here, <laughs> and I'm sure she'll be so glad that you have continued her work. I hope so. I hope yeah. so. I think they were very important people. I think it's important to remember all the special people around us. You were referencing then the backgrounds of your students. Mm. So tell me about you. Oh, me. <laughs> I myself, I would say I had a, a, father, a rather unusual path into the law and into working as a legal academic. I don't think there are many... Well, I'm sure there are some like me, but not necessarily here. So um, I finished my combined degree. I did an arts law degree here at the ANU. And when I finished, I didn't really know what I wanted to do or be. I worked for a little while in community centres uh, in the areas of disability at advocacy. So um, I got to know. But really, what I really wanted to do was start a family. I wanted to be a mum. <laughs> so um, Good on you for yeah. saying that. Yeah, I was really looking forward to spending time with my children. So I actually, I didn't do the career track. Um, I just, I had my first child when I was 26, which is reasonably young for Canberra. And, uh, and then I had my second when I was 28. I started a bit of part-time work on the side when my second daughter was about two. So I was about 30. So I didn't... Really and that involved your degree? It did. I actually worked at the CIT doing legal education in various courses, whatever. <laughs> they worked. I really enjoy teaching. I think it's a really uh, satisfying and rewarding experience. It can be hard work. Why, when you say, and you did arts law, yeah. and this is no small kind of undertaking. Why did you decide to do it? Was it was that sort of classic? You did well at school. You got the marks. Or did you think about being a lawyer? Or no, I don't think I did. Uh, I knew I liked languages and text and um, I've always been interested in literature. I started off with the arts degree and after about two years I thought, oh, I wanted to extend myself a bit further and thought I'd take on a law degree. Someone described it to me, someone who I suppose didn't think about it about as much as I didn't think about it, um, as more, less like a career ladder and more like a career paddock. You know, you know what you like and what's 
what's interesting, but you don't really know where it will take you. So if you get in the paddock and you play around for a while, eventually you might find something you really like to do. Shall we cross here? I'll yeah, we will. We'll, we'll watch, we'll watch the traffic. <laughs> I, I like the description of the paddock. Yeah, <laughs> it's very much me. And in fact, I still feel like I am in a career paddock. <laughs> I enjoy very much what I do and I'm doing it for that and I don't know whether I'll still like it in 10 years. I hope so. Um, but if I don't, I'll just change. So, Was there a moment in your degree you were doing the arts, you like languages, um, but when you hit the law subjects, was there a moment that you remember going, this is fantastic, I love the study of law? Oh, it was in legal theory, <laughs> which is a little unusual. Most people like the cases or the analytical which I also like, but it was the, what's the purpose of law? What's the purpose of rules? How do we interpret and approach them? Why do we do it that way and not any other way? What does it mean to say it's legal? The rule of law. We Journalists love to quote the rule of law. (laughs) On the one hand, you can take it quite simply and know those things because we live them every day. But when you start to dig deeper into them, they're actually very complex things and they're so interesting. They're such an entwined part of our lives. Um, in the background all the time and yeah it's, it's interesting to stop and reflect on those. So I've probably driven past this sculpture <laughs> and not stopped to think and wonder why. Yeah no it's lovely so this sculpture is called Guardian Figures so it's two figures I, I guess it's an abstract representation of those and it's hollow and it's like a bit like a corkscrew and there's a kind of a a bigger space at the bottom, sort of like a body, I suppose, or legs, and then a middle section, and then something that looks a bit like a head. I think I read in the description that it was about them being woven together. Mm. I really like looking at it for a start. I don't know, there's something just really aesthetically pleasing about it. It's fantastic. I mean, they're obviously figures, but they're non-gendered figures. Yes, yes, they're neutral, um, and they are intertwined with each other and what I really like is being able to move around it and see what you see is very different depending on when you stand so if we go you can see these two figures quite clearly here but if you walk around this way like if you look at them from there they look really quite different much more angular the where we were standing before they looked rounder and if you keep going again here we're just circumnavigating the the sculpture again the way that they overlap and the different parts that you see is very different. It's beautiful. I really like, I, there's something really magical about that, I think. I, I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never I've stopped to think and, and, look, and look at it properly. I Thank tr- you. That's all right. I tried to have my profile picture at the ANU College of Law taken in front of it. but And we tried lots of different angles, but it just... You, you, it dominated, did it? No, it just didn't represent... It just couldn't convey what I wanted it to, so I ended up taking it somewhere else. <laughs> I think I had it in front of a, a, a beautiful native bush or something like that. All right, the, the last one, well, so we'll head that way. Is that okay? Yeah, I'll, I'll go wherever you like. Right. Um, is this way, and yeah, we're heading down to the Drill Hall Gallery, so it's okay. a, a bit more of a distance than it just was. But... Well, I'll get in more chat about you oh. now. <laughs> so from you know that moment of of really, I suppose, drilling down into the law. That was the, the moment for mm. you. Mm. And, and then, as you said, you wanted to have children. I'm so glad you've said this because <laughs> often isn't said enough. And then the, the part-time work and teaching, yes. so that, that all came together there for yes. you? Yes. I had a contract with basically our unit that looks at educational development more broadly. They needed someone to work on a project with Legal Workshop, which is our graduate arm of the law school. 
And so I took that. And then when Liz sadly passed away, they said, are you interested and available in this role? And I said, I would love to do that. And that's the start of my employment relationship with the ANU. And we're walking actually at lunchtime and we're back, it's term time again. Mm, and the students, students are out. <laughs> there are lots of students around us. But do you love that? Do you love to walk out amongst? I all... do, I do. Uh, it's a very lively place, more lively at the beginning and the end of every hour when they switch. <laughs> but um, it's nice and it's quiet times too. It's a beautiful gardens. I know I've taken you on a walk on some of the sculptures which are, I suppose, more deliberately set but there's a lot of just hidey holes and hideaway places with beautiful greenery and gardens that it's a great place to explore. So and now your current role and we're going to get on to um, your PhD which you've done on citizenship which I think is so fascinating but tell me about your kind of day-to-day role here now at the ANU Law School. I am now a senior lecturer I have some teaching responsibilities, which is lovely, and I teach in the area of family law and also feminist and critical legal theory. So I've been able to take my personal interest in the theoretical field about law and to be able to teach in it. It's always a delight to teach that course. There's a bit of a popular feeling that feminism, either we don't need it anymore or it's (laughs) dead, but that's so not true (laughs) on so many levels. Um, Actually, give me some examples when you say where it's so not true. (laughs) Why do you still need to be teaching it? The law now looks like, largely, it doesn't discriminate between men and women in Australian society. Certainly there aren't very many references to women only or men only in laws in ways which would disadvantage one gender. But that doesn't mean its operation doesn't um, disadvantage people based on their gender. And also just the way that it's structured. So although I don't do tax law, the way our taxes are regulated and who pays for what has a differential gender burden. So it's very interesting. So I get to talk about that and bring these uh, very contemporary issues uh, to students studying law who largely will say things or have shared with me things like, oh, I didn't realise there was so much work left to do. Tax law, corporations law, but also, you know, perhaps the more obvious areas of law such as, you know, that regulating abortion or that regulating sexual assaults or domestic violence and all those things. You're going to be in work for a long, long time. (laughs) Well, I wish I wasn't, but for that reason. But, no, I I think there's uh, a need. I have some wonderful people also at the College of Law who I have opportunities to talk to and walk with, one of whom is uh, Professor Margaret Thornton, who is the scholar in the area and... From my understanding of conversations with her, it was a significant part of the law school in the 80s and early 90s, but I know when I went through, it was much less of a talked-about topic, and there was a bit of a lull, perhaps. Well, that's how we com- we often feel about it, but it, there seems to have been a more recent take-up again. It's um, not too sure why, but it is. Maybe the people who were schooled in the 80s and 90s are missing it, and was, let's bring it back. <laughs> That's a lovely thing to underline too. You say, when I get to walk um, with someone who's an expert in the area, here you are in this kind of cauldron of thought and discussion. And it must be, it must be a wonderful feeling, is it? It is. I occasionally have time to reflect on, I'm in the best possible place. 
Uh, imagine being paid to think deeply and carefully about issues that affect us. To me, I can't imagine doing anything better. <laughs> so, and that's probably something you didn't factor in when you went to study arts law. No, but... no, I don't think so. Although perhaps that was what drew me to university, the appeal of university in the first place, the idea that you know, here was a, a place where you could meet others who were also interested in thinking deeply about concepts and ideas, and it mattered. We are having a great big conversation about citizenship because of the constitution and yeah. politicians, <laughs> but you are looking at this in a really much more deeper and broader way. Tell me what first drew you to the whole concept of citizenship. I was reading a case, Alcatab, it's actually about uh, migration law, and in it one of the judges talks, actually draws on literature and talks about the, um, the Flying Dutchman, uses this as a, a figure to say that in today's world with our migration laws, with each country controlling its own rules about who can enter and who can't, we have a situation where there may be people who are forever outside of a country, sort of circulating through the seas like the Flying Dutchman and never being able to set foot on land. Stateless. Yes. I mean, he uses the flying touchman to very colourfully and quite uh, creatively, I think, give this concept, uh, I don't know, a depth that I don't think when we just use the legal term stateless, we get. Mm. And I think it has interesting repercussions too because the Flying Dutchman is also, as I understand, on a haunted ship <laughs> and there's a certain ghostly tragedy about it. It was the idea that you could have countries in control of who gets to stay and who gets to leave, belonging, uh, those narratives that made me want to investigate more. And at the time, there was the passage of the Australian Citizen. Act in We're just going through the pop-up. <laughs> <laughs> and it's lunchtime and it's very busy. <laughs> but back to the passage. Yeah, is it through? Um, in 2007. And um, what I was noticing was that the language used about citizenship seemed to be changing and it seemed to be inflected with, in my mind, some very concerning new trends around uh, cultural uniformity and homogeneity. What's examples of that? In 2007, it was, uh, take you back to the era of Prime Minister John Howard and Peter Costello, and they were largely talking about Australian values, about leaving. If you wanted to come here, you do what Australians say, and if, you, if you're told to leave your shoes at the door, you leave them at the door, and if you don't like it, you go. And intertwined perhaps less specifically articulated, was all this rhetoric was directed at particularly our Muslim population. So the dog whistling of that particular time. So it was, it's all right for the Sloanes and the Macduff to go to their Scottish, um, you know, um, Kayleys, yes. but it's not all right for someone to go, of, of Muslim um, faith, to go to some celebration of their own. Or to express their cultural practices or religious practices or their difference, basically, to a unstated norm about what was Australian. And that troubled me because what was being set up in a very indirect kind of way was this re-establishment of the white Australia policy. Which was in place to the 70s here, yes. wasn't it? Yeah. So um, there are different scholars who say different things about when it was dropped. It, 
what's clear is that it was officially dropped in the 70s, or at least that's what I've found. <laughs> Those statements, you know, that it was dead, the White Australia policy was dead, but it was around for a very long time. Again, never specifically stated in the law but it was used as a device to justify discriminatory measures such as the dictation test and who received welfare payments and who didn't, who could get licences for uh, becoming professionals or in certain employment sectors and things like that. And that, at that stage, when that came in, that was basically aimed at the Chinese, wasn't it? Yes, although it did capture a whole range of Afghans and, yeah. Yeah. And, the, and our Indigenous peoples as well. So it's a part of our history that Australians don't perhaps like to dig into deeply, but we should. There's definitely still a lot more to understand about its nuances. I think where it is recognised, it can be a bit simplified, which is fine because in some ways we need to be able to explain it and talk about it. But where it is simplified, sometimes it's placed in the past as something that happened in Australia's history that we are now finished and it's over. And while, as we mentioned in the 1970s, it was officially discredited and said, you know, it's dead, we're moving on. Um, And certainly there has been a commitment to racial inclusion since the 70s by many different governments in a whole variety of ways. The lingering preference or privilege, I argue, largely remains. And we need to question that. We are going to continue that conversation with Anne <laughs> McDuff very soon. So we've heard about the catalyst and, and why she's been motivated to, um, to dig deeply into this in a PhD. But we're now at the University Drill Hall Gallery. Yes. And just, Anne, explain what we're looking at. So we're looking at another of my favourite sculptures. Um, I ride my bike to work every day and I ride past this one, I think, for I don't at least 15 years or 10, 15 years. And it doesn't actually have a title. And it has four planks, I guess. And from afar, they look like they're nested, so they're arcs. One, the lowest one is wide and broad, and then increasingly they sort of stand up, I guess. And they're held up with wires at the top. And to me, um, this is a nice reminder of the importance of balance. And, again, it's just really aesthetically pleasing. When I see it, I... It, reminds me of a stillness and a balance that's important in life, particularly when some of the things that in family law and in gender and race issues that I look at every day and now in my role as sub-dean at the, at the ANU College of Law can be quite distressing and quite upsetting uh, for very appropriate, completely understandable reasons. This is helpful to me to restore a sense of internal balance. Because that's something that you also work with the students on too, is the balance in their lives between study and their other life. And their well, mental well, and emotional well-being, um, the importance of health, you know, their physical activity and their relationships, which while I'm not qualified to talk about, do come up in terms of my pastoral care role to, to them. Well, I'm just glad someone's asking the question. <laughs> was it asked of you when you were a student? No, I don't think it was. But I did have a very strong friendship network and I still do and I'm very grateful for that. But not everyone has that, do they? No, they don't. And sometimes it's easy in law. We have so many wonderful young students who are such high achievers, so very smart and I don't know where the source of the pressure comes from. I think a lot of it actually comes from within themselves, their own drive, they want to achieve, they've always done well and they come to law school and 
uh, sometimes it can just be really hard work. And sometimes I am surprised or I like to try and support students to develop their resilience and capacity for uncertainty because it's not always easy and, you know, students do fail and things happen to them that they don't want to have happen and the law is not straightforward or easy or can't put it in a formula and sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't and to be able to go, okay, that was, you know, perhaps not what I wanted but I'll learn from that and I'll keep moving on. I think a sense of balance and internal stillness or just remembering to touch in on revisit that when you can and this sculpture does that for me it's so great the more we talk about what we can learn from failure because most Mm. of us have failures in something Mm. at some stage Mm. in our lives Mm. and what we learn from that is so important so important Um, i'm not sure if you caught it there was a professor i think a law professor at princeton who published his fail cv and i actually thought that was a wonderful thing because we always see the highlights reels of everybody else's life you know and, and and we can be happy for them and their success but what we don't often see is all the things that it took to get there and when you do you realize even for someone as you know amazing and obviously clever as the Princeton professor he too also had his what he would class as his failures or what things he didn't get that he really wanted to get. There was one year at the start of the the education year as a broadcaster I played JK Rowling's address to the Harvard students and she talked about failure as well because she said you know I was a single mum you know really up against it and I thought it was one of the best speeches I've heard. Oh, well, I am now... Um, on YouTube. <laughs> I now very much should listen to that. I, I think it's hard in uh, increasingly highly competitive fields and with students who haven't tended to fail in the past to go into a law degree, suddenly they may be confronted by those things and it's reminding them that that's okay. If you've done the... I, now I'm going into to my parenting mode. If you've done the best you can then continue with that and find something that will continue to make you happy. Now, and just to, we're going to jump back to citizenship. What do you think Australians think it is to pledge, to make a citizenship pledge? Is there a kind of general view that, oh, this is about inclusiveness, this is about belonging? I do, I do. And I think there's a sense that we want something that we share that makes sense that's unique and familiar that makes us special I guess when you link it to a legal status and you link it to the legal consequences of having it or not having it all of a sudden you have the arm of the law enforcing a sense of sameness and And control control and that means that those who are different or who would like a bit more flexibility kind of get left out (laughs) because if you you know go through Australian values you know if I did this on talkback radio people go oh it's about fair go it's about the larrikin spirit it's about defying authority how much of that is (laughs) actually part of the process when it's legally written down well it's actually in my PhD scholarship I was looking at some key themes and while those two particular a fair go and our larrikin spirit at one time and at various times have, have been quite visible more recently since 2007 they've disappeared interestingly enough particularly the larrikin spirit so if the larrikin spirit is the i want to do something different i want to you know question authority that's gone that's shocking yes yes i think so and i mean while that term has its own history which is also very rich at the moment it's probably the term i would use to say well let's 
if you're going to use something as a hook to latch on to say, well, we need to include difference, we need to question, and that is part of whatever we understand Australian values to be, yeah, that's gone. Why is it gone? My view is that actually it's troublesome because it questions this a uniformity and a control over a, a stable set of identity, of a national identity that um, we can decide who is and who isn't. So as soon as you have larrikins and you start questioning, well then, hang on a sec, maybe we can't decide who is and who isn't. And then it undermines that approach, I suppose. And doesn't active citizenship is then not possible? And you give examples of Rosa Park, of Martin Luther King. Yes, because we forget how important these figures are, these, the questioning. At the moment they, they get turned into troublemakers or criminals. It was interesting looking at the range of changes that was going to be introduced in 2015 with um, the Foreign Fighters Bill, which was an amendment to the Citizenship Act that the Prime Minister Tony Abbott was going to introduce. As it turned out, this particular part of it ended up not going through. But one thing was this, your citizenship could be stripped if you committed a property offence. It was property offences against Commonwealth assets. And when you think about it in Canberra, uh, someone suggested to me that if you had a car accident and ended up running into a Commonwealth public vehicle, that was probably enough on the strict interpretation of the law for you to have your Australian citizenship stripped, particularly if you had another one in the background. Yeah, I think of the chaser team climbing the St Mark's <laughs> church here in Canberra, or the no war, not from the chaser, but the no war on, on the, the opera, house. opera house. What we've seen recently is that this exercise or of control, of maintaining a sense of power and being able to determine who is and who isn't, extend from the migration law area into the citizenship law space. And that is why I do think we've seen in uh, these increasing moves to change the legislation to have wider and wider capacities to strip people of their citizenship for, an ever, sadly, I think, an ever-increasing range of reasons. And while, on the one hand, this seems like it's practical and it keeps us safe, my question is that each increasingly tighter set of regulations has actually not made any change. So each time they come through, they say it's for our safety. That's what they said about the last lot, and I'm not quite sure what the driver for this increasing expansion is. Because if that going to the larrikin spirit and yes. the dissenters and, yes. and the people who say, no, this is not right, yes. you're saying that increasingly under this citizenship regime, we're not seeing those voices coming from people who've taken that pledge. No. Well, that's... Incredibly worrying, it isn't it? It's very worrying. And in fact, one person said to me that your PhD is a personal journey as much as it is about your intellectual interests. And I was born here in Australia. My mother is English. My father is from New Zealand. And when I was born, neither of them were Australian citizens. I was born in Queensland, but well, I was very nearly born in Papua New Guinea because my father was a geologist and we would often live wherever he was close to wherever he was doing his fieldwork. So until my mother was about eight months pregnant, we'd actually been in Papua New Guinea. Now at the time, if I had been born in Papua New Guinea, I would not be an Australian citizen because of the way that the territorial relationships were. I only found this out about five years ago. Like, that was close. <laughs> four weeks, in it? Yeah, I know. Four weeks ago could have been very different. And then... When I was doing my research on citizenship, actually it's quite relevant to our current parliamentarians at the moment, where I thought, 
oh, hang on a sec, <laughs> the mechanisms for depriving you of Australian citizenship are different for those who, well, they used to be different for those who migrated here and became Australian citizens. They could be dual citizens. But if you were an Australian citizen and you took on another one, you could lose your Australian one. This was, this is an old provision. We now allow dual citizenship, so it's no longer a problem. But when I was 17, my mum said, you know, you're entitled to a British passport. You should apply for one. And I thought, well, mum's got two, you know. Oh, I have, it just allowed me to travel. I wanted to travel through Europe. I was learning French. I thought, oh, this will be good. Anyway, so I did and I got one. And as it turned out, I was granted British citizenship at 17 and nine months or something of age. As it turns out, if it had been three months later, I would have lost my Australian citizenship. Because at that time, the rules around dual citizenship were that I would, if I was as an adult, had taken on another one, I would have lost my Australian one. So I've had a number of very close shaves. <laughs> Which again, I guess, is a catalyst for your deeper investigation of, of where we're at. Absolutely. And I feel for the parliament, this is an issue, um, mind you, that became more apparent to me through my research. It's a very present one for Australians more broadly. And with the current issues with the parliamentarians... Um, if 40% of our population are either born somewhere else or their parents were, that is actually a very large number of people who potentially have access to multiple citizenships, whether by their own action, like mine was, where I set out to apply for British citizenship, or by the actions and laws of the, the other nationality that they may be entitled to. These things operate not necessarily according to one's wishes, although they might do, but also by the operation of law that the Australian legal system cannot control the legal systems of other countries. And the irony that we have a foreign head of state, yeah. it's just extraordinary yeah. in the midst of all of this. Because in part of your piece, so you, and we remember this debate going on um, in 1993 and our policymakers looked to a poet, um, yes. Les Murray, yes. and it's really interesting the, for him to come up with a preamble. Yes. And the first draft of the preamble was really interesting, wasn't yes. it? Yes, it was, because he had some additional lines in his poem which suggested that actually we could incorporate... Um, and question our parliamentarians and uh, a bit more of the larrikin spirit, I suppose. But interestingly enough, those were the two lines that were dropped and actually aren't part of our oath. Because he had the final line. Well, he had the word freedom in there, which was taken out. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think Australians realise that. No, no. Uh, While some people may say words are... You know, they're just words. But words are also very important. That's they, a big one, freedom. Well, yeah, and they represent and they symbolise um, some very deep ideas that you can sense a lot about what's going on uh, sort of behind the scenes if you pay close attention to the words and their nuances. Beautifully to um, Anne McDuff. I love the fact you give a great discussion about performance and the oath. Yes. Why do you think that's important to, to talk about that? As a trained lawyer, I think uh, a lot of my other scholars will look at the law as coming from texts, so the texts of legislation and cases, and they're very important, and the law does come from those places. But the law is about, in my mind, is around us everywhere, and we embody it all the time. We enact it through our behaviours, what we do and what we don't do. And um, the performance of the pledge is about enacting and saying aloud these words in a unison, creating a sense that we, well, we are 
unified and that we do believe in the, the values and it helps influence, well it does influence and shape actually what comes to be legally interpreted in the text. It's because lawyers, like everyone else, um, are often part of our community and we enact those oaths and pledges too. And it's done in front of very important symbols, isn't very it? Very important symbols, so political symbols, symbols of the state, including the Queen, um, the National Anthem, uh, all of those markers of government and authority. So we've come back, we've come back to the law school. I, look, I mean, I've only just dipped into a tiny bit of your PhD, cause, but it's really fascinating. What, I mean, if you're going to leave us on this note today, I mean, it goes on, but what would you like to leave us thinking about when it comes to this demand of perhaps many of us about citizenship? I think that we, our default position is that a strong community um, and we hear this a bit in the in the rhetoric, is a cohesive community, a unified community. It's bound together by what we share. That's the kind of language that it gets spoken about. And citizenship status can be a symbol of that. So, you know, we all share citizenship status. We all believe in these things. That's part of what binds us together. I would really like us to pause and think about what's going on when we stay and use and assume those things because um, when we use that language there will always be people that are excluded it doesn't send a a particular symbol that we are inclusive that we do recognize difference I think we need to think about how do we live in a peaceful uh, respectful society which I want to like many of us do um, but in a way which means we can actually get along with people even that we don't like and who are different and who do share different values from us. I actually think that would be a much more interesting, valuable discussion to be having than to fall back on, well, do we have the same values? If we do, they're in, and if we don't, they're out. And all the dangers that come with that around um, excluding people from different cultural backgrounds because or racial backgrounds because it's a clear, visible marker. There's no real reason for it other than it's an easy one, a simple one to make. Um, and if it's shutting down important dissent, the freedom absolutely. to say, actually, this is not right, mm. that's really worrying, isn't it? Very, very worrying. So coming along with racial and other kinds of differences, are any differences about expressions on political values, on what democracy means, as far as um, I've been able to track our, the richness of what are the features of democracy in Australia that are important, we've largely stopped talking about those things. And I think that the danger is that, sure, people can be cynical about politics, and I mean, that's something that's been researched, um, not just in Australia but everywhere, I'd want to change that. But um, to change that, you really need to start having more meaningful discussions about what it means to be um, to be a democratic country, what it means to have someone with a different values, how we resolve those or talk through those differences to get to a decision and how we maintain sort of through that a safe and respectful society despite those differences, not because we've excluded them from the conversation. Hence the discussion about constitutional recognition of our Indigenous people. Indeed, yeah. There's so many layers. I mean, citizenship law is not the only area of law where you can see these patterns and these ways of talking sort of emerging and these implications. Um, there are many different... Constitutional law is one, migration law is another, and we spoke a little bit about that. I've been personally interested by just how more visible citizenship law is now than it, I think it's been in the decades that I've been aware and watching 
You picked your moment, didn't you? I did in the end, which is quite interesting because I started it about eight years ago. (laughs) So I could never have um, foreseen that this would be, at the time that I actually submitted um, was the time that this has re-emerged with this next round with the different requirements around establishing your English language, about um, sort of standards around new provisions around stripping your citizenship. Look, I've just scraped the surface. Congratulations on all your work so far. And, and I think your passion and commitment to your students here. Oh, it's obviously something that you really, really love doing. I do, I do. I wouldn't be doing anything else right now. This is my career paddock for the for the next moment. I'm, I'm finding it very satisfying. So thank you for talking to me today. And you must have a child in year 12 too. So I do, I do. She's about to graduate. Um and that will be, and she's going to take gap years. This is a thing, not not a gap year anymore. It's gap years. So, <laughs> good on her. Yeah, I know. I was thinking I want some. <laughs> and McDuff, thanks so much. Thank you so much.